The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Ken Fisher, uh, who is a well-known financial expert. Uh, He has come out with a new book called Debunkery, Learn It, Do It, and Profit From It, Seeing Through Wall Street's Money-Killing Myths. Welcome to the show, Ken. Thanks for having me back. It's truly an honor for me to uh, have you have me back. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, for, everybody knows who you are, but just in case, in case, j- just tell them briefly about your background and, and about the Fisher Investments and uh, a little bit of, of your background. Well, let's see. I've been in uh, the money management industry 38 years. Uh, I've written the portfolio strategy column for Forbes for 26 years. I'm the fourth longest running columnist in Forbes 93-year history. I'm the founder and CEO of Fisher Investments, which is a little over $40 billion-sized asset manager uh, spanning high net worth and institutional markets in the United States, Britain, Germany, etc., I've written seven books, uh, four New York Times bestsellers, including The Bunkery, which uh, just yesterday came out on the New York Times bestseller list at number seven and has been on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list for about five weeks, six weeks now, and is currently listed at number five, which is really an honor for me. And and this book, which is obviously my latest, is really something that I've wanted to do for a long time because it really helps people understand how they can go about debunking falsehoods themselves since the financial landscape is uh, very full of things that are easy to disprove, even though often widely accepted. So how do these uh, myths kind of come up? If they're not true, how do they be, uh, how are they perpetuated? What a behavioralist would say, Jordan, is that we as humans tend to suffer a thing called confirmation bias, which is the tendency to see the evidence that confirms our prior biases, but to not see the evidence that contradicts them. And there's lots of things where we're just kind of hardwired to see certain stuff, so we see it. And therefore, these myths get going, and then they just perpetuate forever. And because we tend not to see the evidence that contradicts them, and we tend not to look for the evidence that contradicts them, and we tend to think that if everybody else says it must be true, that probably it is true, we don't look for them, so we don't see them. So the point that I make in the book is that the investment management business that I've been in all my life is one where there is, A, no perfection at all. The very best people make a lot of mistakes. If you could be right 70% of the time in the long term, you'd become an absolute living legend, which would mean you'd be wrong 30% of the time. So you better get used to being wrong. But if you can drop your error rate a little bit and increase your success rate a little bit, it actually kind of goes a long way because most people and you know, this has all been proven for a long time. Most people tend to be more right, uh, be more wrong than right. And so a little differential in making yourself more right than wrong 
uh, goes a very long distance. And reducing error rate is one of getting over the confirmation bias that makes you not see the evidence that demonstrates your prior biases are wrong. What kind of difference in rates of return do you think investors would achieve if they uh, read debunkery and don't fall for these myths? Well, I think that depends on a second point, which is if they then extrapolate it to try to seek out other myths themselves. But I think it's not that hard for somebody to do uh, an easy 5% more a year if they just kill a few myths here and there. Oh, that sounds good. Okay. 5% 5 more a year for most people is a lot. It would add up if you're compounding it over time, for sure. Absolutely. 5% a year compounded over time, whether you're taxable or tax-free, either way, is a huge differential. Yeah. Uh, let's, 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 let's put that another way. If you think of equity managers, most professional equity managers like the market. Some beat the market. Obviously, not that many. Of the ones that beat the market, very many fewer beat it by more than 2% than beat it by less percent than 2%. You can't find pretty much anybody that's got a 30-year track record at 15% over the market. So a 5% differential compared to what you would have done otherwise is huge, kind of moving you up the rankings compared to your peers. Indeed. Okay, and uh, tell people if there's a website or how they can find out about the book before we kind of get into it. Uh, if you just went online, Google, and either Google my name or Google Debunkery or went to Amazon, uh, you can find that anywhere. Uh, I mean, if you just Google Debunkery, you'll find it. Very good. Okay, we're going to start right in. Uh, part one uh, is what you call basic bunk to make you broke. And your first uh, bunk, and you have a total of 50. We probably aren't going to get to all of them, but at least give, us, give some people the idea of what's in here, is that bonds are safer than stocks. And particularly lately, I mean, it, it, you think that uh, the bond market's done very well, interest rates have been falling, and uh, the government's going to pay back, and, and municipals have a very low default rate, and stocks are wildly volatile. So what's the myth about bonds are safer than stocks? Well, there's really two issues here. One of them is, what's your time horizon? So someone, let's say, that's 50 years old, that's going to be investing for uh, their 45-year-old spouse for maybe the next 45 years uh, and has well over a 30-year time horizon, needs to think through that those risk numbers go down steadily for uh, uh, stocks and up for bonds when you extend time horizons. So, for example, and as I show in the book, uh, risk versus return looks very different if you think of three-year rolling periods than if you think of one-year rolling periods. If you think of 30-year rolling periods, they're completely opposite. Stocks are less risky, have higher returns, and so the most important part, and this is one of my basic prescriptions for people always anyway, is think through what your time horizon really is, because if your time horizon is one year, you shouldn't be investing in stocks anyway. On the short term, stocks are more volatile, and your risk there is volatility. In the long term, you've got a lot of other risks with um, bonds, which include um, bigger and bigger long-term inflation risk, etc. And so you can actually run through very long periods in history where year after year after year after year did not only stocks do better than bonds, but bonds actually net lost money. If you take, for example, the rolling uh, three-year periods from uh, 1937 through 1987, bonds lost money most of the time. And you know intuitively that if long-term interest rates go up from here for a long period, during that long period, bonds will be losing money. Will stocks? Some years yes, some years no. But in that environment, stocks become less risky. So the one part is 
long-term versus short. The other is what kind of risks you're concerned about. I mean, in the last 30 years, had you gotten into a lot of bonds when rates were extremely high in the early 80s, you would have done very well. Rates have Absolutely. been falling for the most part for the last 30 years. But you're saying, particularly now, with rates at very low levels, that there's more risk of rates going up than going down and inflation going up than down from where we are today. Well, I'm not making a prediction, Jordan. What I'm, what I'm saying is that even in the long periods where bonds have done pretty well, you know, we, we can find a couple of long periods where bonds have done better than stocks, but only by a little bit. And I show those data in the book. When you actually look at long periods, overwhelmingly most rolling long periods, stocks do better than bonds and buy a lot. In the few instances where bonds have done better than stocks, it's by only a hair's whisker. The risk-return trade-off when you extend the time horizon flips from favoring bonds to favoring stocks. In short time horizons, it definitely favors bonds. That goes back to know yourself and what's your time horizon, what are you investing for, and Again, if you take the last 30 years, bonds did pretty well. If you take the 30 years before that, bonds did disastrously. If you were Ben Bernanke today, and he said his main concern is deflation, not inflation, then you'd want to have a lot in bonds, right? So you're basically disagreeing with Bernanke where he is today. Uh, I'm just going to go off in a direction that doesn't have anything to do with my book, Debunkery, that we were talking about before. Mm -hmm. But when... William McChesney Martin was head of the Fed. He made a lot of mistakes, and people asked him afterwards, uh, so why'd you make all the mistakes? And he said, well, you take a pill when you become head of the Fed that makes you forget everything you ever knew, and that <laughs> pill lasts just as long as you're head of the Fed. And then Arthur Burns came along and was head of the Fed, probably the best qualified guy up to that point in time ever to be head of the Fed. He was a disastrous head of the Fed. And afterwards, they asked Burns, so Dr. Burns, why did you do all these things when forever you said you never do any of those things? And he said, well, I took Martin's pill. And <laughs> the fact of the matter is, I think Bernanke's taken Martin's pill. I see. Okay, very good. All right, Enrico, the next uh, thing to debunk is that well-rested investors are better investors. You say people are supposed to sleep well at night. What's, what's wrong with that as being an investor? Well, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm all in favor of rest. Uh, in fact, I think you're going to be hard-pressed to find anybody that says you should be morally opposed to sleep. But uh, the, the fact is that what you really need to do is separate sort of your sleep time from your non-sleep time and remember that if what you really want is comfort, capital markets have always been a very expensive place to get it. Fundamentally, uh, there is this these notions like trust your gut. Uh, as I document in uh, one of my chapters, your gut's almost always your worst enemy. Mm -hmm. uh, there's the notion that if there's one big bear market ahead of me and I don't do it right, that kills me. Actually, the historical returns of stocks and bonds and everything else is full of bull markets and bear markets, and the next one is just one if you have a long time horizon. Uh, the, the other one is, I'm going to wait until the coast is clear. The coast is never clear. Anybody mm -hmm. that ever thinks it is is uh, kind of missing the behavioralist point that we don't see these things very well. Uh, and again, you know, another one that, again, relates to that comfort portion is that retirees must be conservative. Uh, again, what does that mean? One of the points that I make a lot is that if you're the 65-year-old married to the 50-year-old and you've got bad health and you're going to live 10 years, uh, but she's 50 and going to live to be 95, uh, you need to invest for her time horizon, not yours. And if you invest for your time horizon, you're going to hurt her in the long term, and she's going to suffer aged poverty. And uh, if you hate her that much, you might as well just go and hit her. So, uh, <laughs> But I mean, your point about people sleeping is you're saying that they become too conservative and don't really get good returns because they're being uh, so worried about the volatility. Is that what you're saying? They're so worried about 
what you could think of as features that relate to being myopic. One of the things that behavioralists teach us is that humans are incessantly myopic because of where we come from, from thousands and thousands and thousands of years of evolution is to place short-term emphasis over long-term emphasis, and yet we live so long today that long-term risks are actually bigger for us usually than short-term risks, yet we tend to be myopic, and so we tend to only see the one kind of risk. One risk is what happens next month. Another risk is do you get enough toward the end of your time horizon, and people tend to favor myopic in the name of comfort. Indeed. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Ken Fisher, uh, whose new book is called Debunkery, Learn It, Do It, and Profit From It, Seeing Through Wall Street's Money-Killing Myths. We'll be back after this. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to go green? You've asked and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Hi, this is Jordan Goodman, host of The Money Answer Show. I cordially invite you to join me and some of my favorite investing experts for the Money Answers Investing Cruise from February 12th through February 19th, 2011, on board Holland America's luxurious MS Eurodam. In this volatile investing environment, good advice is more important than ever, and this exclusive Caribbean cruise offers not only fun, but also a full week of highly informative events with me and other top investing experts like Ray Lucia and Charles Payne from Fox News Network. During seminars, panel discussions, and Q&As, at cocktail parties and at dinners, we will discuss current market conditions and the best places for your investment dollars. Meanwhile, luxuriate in the amenities of Holland America's newest ship and visit some of the best ports for shopping, sightseeing, and sunning. For more information, go to www.moneyanswerscruise.com or call 800 707 1634. That's 800-707-1634. And don't delay because spaces are limited. Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Issa provides homeowners and investors eager to invest well in real estate the knowledge, resources, and tools necessary to generate significant wealth. Our focus will be the paradigm. Live where you want. Invest where it makes the most sense. Listen live to the brightest minds in real estate investment every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. That's Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Issa, where America learns to invest. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Ken Fisher, uh, whose new book is called Debunkery, Learn It, Do It, and Profit From It, Seeing Through Wall Street's Money-Killing Myths. Welcome back to the show, Ken. Again, thanks for having me. It's an honor. Uh, we were talking about retirees must be conservative as being one of the myths out there. I mean, the feeling is, if you've made your money, you can't afford to put your capital at risk, and you should just be in bonds and income-oriented stocks because uh, if the market went down, and, and particularly in 2008, when people saw the market go down a lot, they said, you know, I, I took too much risk because uh, all of my retirement savings are gone. So, so what's a myth about that? Well, again, it comes down, as I was saying in our prior segment, to what your time horizon is. So if you look at uh, how returns have moved in the past, regardless of size of bear markets, the fundamental feature of very long periods is that the risk of bonds is actually greater. The fundamental risk of stocks is greater in short-term periods. So if you are the retiree with, as I mentioned before, maybe the 65-year-old just retired with a 50-year-old wife, you're going to live 10 years. She's going to live maybe another 40 years or 45 years. For her, the risk is much bigger if you do that conservative stay in bonds because uh, history shows very clearly that over longer-term time periods, uh, bonds are riskier than actually than stocks are. In shorter periods, stocks are riskier. Humans are hardwired to be myopic and think in terms of short periods. But many retirees, not all, some retirees have short time horizons. Lots of other retirees, and initially when they first retire, many, many more have today very long time horizons because we live so long. You're saying in many cases the retirees are underestimating their life expectancy and therefore they're too conservative because they think they're going to last 10 or whatever years and they end up lasting 30 or more years. But also, as I document in the book, they think that if they have one big bear market that they suffer, somehow that takes them out. And I have a whole uh, chapter uh, that shows that one big bear market, uh, no matter how big it is, doesn't take you out. History, all of history is full of a combination of bear markets, bull markets, and everything. And the fact is, yes, if you can foresee a bear market, get out of it and sidestep it if you know how to do that. But if you don't foresee it and you get hit by it, uh, it really isn't the end of the world if you have a long time horizon. If you don't have a long time horizon, uh, and, you know, there's all these pieces of wisdom that you learn, uh, you know, when you're pretty young or you're supposed to have, which is, you know, things like, you know, have a year's worth of of operating cash set aside if you need it. And, you know, I mean, it's not like you put everything into into anything, but this notion that I have to be risk averse in the short term because I'm retired forgets totally the other risk, which is opportunity cost risk, which is a real risk in the long term. And for those with the long term, it's actually a bigger risk than short term volatility risk. And even more so today, when bonds and CDs and money market funds are yielding <laughs> Nothing, basically, for cash instruments and very low. No, no, no. Comfort today is particularly an expensive thing. I mean, if you're just going to sit there and say, I'm going to retire and buy, you know, 30-year treasuries and sit on my 30-year treasuries, uh, there's a lot of opportunity cost there. And there's, in fact, 
uh, a fair amount of absolute return risk uh, should we have throughout that time period more inflation than expected and or uh, a secular trend in rising interest rates, which history's had many times before. And I'm not predicting in the next tomorrow or the next year. I'm not predicting at all in particular, but can happen, does happen. One of your other myths is uh, you should expect average returns. So what is uh, a myth about that? No, it's not that you shouldn't expect average returns. uh, that, that, that you should not expect average returns. That the, One of the features that people miss because stocks are volatile in the short term is you hear people say things like, which is correct but wrong at the same time, stocks in the long term have done about X percent, which uh, by many measures is some number like 10 percent depending on your time period and your index. And while that's right, the delivery of those returns in any given short-term period, like a year, is rarely close to the average. The market tends to be either, for example, 2010 is a very unusual year in that the return this year is very close to the average. That rarely happens. What normally happens, and we're blind to this because we just don't tend to see data very well as we go through life, is that returns tend to either be very big or negative. And the average is made up overwhelmingly of very big returns and negative returns. And I give you all of those data in the book uh, to show you that the average returns don't happen very often. So if you're looking for average returns and you think, boy, you know, I'm going to get average returns in the stock market, you really won't. One year you'll get very high returns, another year you'll get negative returns, and the average is made up of all of that with very few that come in close to the average. So average returns aren't normal. Normal returns are extreme. This is what part of the appeal of Bernie Madoff was, is he was providing average returns consistently no matter what the market did, right? Well, I have a a section in the book on spotting con artists. And every con artist that does a Ponzi scheme, like Madoff, Madoff included, but they all offer these returns that are a chunk above long-term average returns, but not hugely so, but real smooth, because people like that smoothness. And the fact of the matter is there's a whole series of things that these Ponzi scheme con artists do, but that's one of them always, which is returns that are too good to be true, but particularly too good to be true, not because the average is so high, but the average is higher than true averages, and then they're really smooth. The fact is it's really impossible the greatest investors of all time have had bad years and yes. that because markets are volatile and you don't always get it right and it's a part of average returns not being normal normal returns being extreme yes you also say capital preservation and growth is possible is a myth why is that a myth that this is what people talk about all the time is i want my capital to grow and not not take any capital risk which is a lot like you know saying i want uh, fat free steak um, I want, uh, you know, uh, non-addictive heroin. Uh, that's not bad for me. It's, all, it's easy to see why people want that, because they want their cake and eat it too, so to speak. Of course, whoever has a cake that they're not going to eat. But the point that I want people to see there is that capital preservation means taking no risk. Uh, generating returns requires taking risk. So you can take no risk in the short term. But the dilemma with that is there's really about five types of risk all at the same time, and all that does is stems you from one of them. The fact is that 
when you say, I'm not going to take any market volatility risk in the short term, you subject yourself to other risks. There is no such thing as capital preservation on an inflation-adjusted basis. Uh, uh, you, you know, people want returns and capital preservation. The, the two just don't go together. You, you must take some risk if you want returns. If you actually just want capital preservation, uh, you're not going to take any risk. Yeah. Well, I hear this a lot over the last two years when people saw their retirements going down so much that they went right into capital preservation right at the bottom of the market and missed all the, the upside. And that kind of leads to your next uh, myth, which is to make sure it's a bull market before diving in. And we've certainly seen that recently, is that people got totally freaked out, the market bottomed, and they didn't believe it all the way up, basically. Well, and this is normal. Bull markets love to climb a wall of worry. Bull markets happen, as I mentioned earlier, without some clarity of vision ahead. If there was clarity of vision ahead, markets already would have priced that in. The inherent nature of the early few years of every bull market is some notion that we've got these big, terrible new things that we aren't used to from the past that are going to make the future not so good, and therefore we should wait for clarity. We should wait until we know it's a bull market. Uh, you never know it's a bull market. Uh, you never have certainty. Everything's an odds game. There's always a risk you're wrong. And you'll never know when you stand at a point in time with certainty that the next three years are going to be great or the next year is going to be great. And exactly as you said, the way most people react is the, the more stocks fall, the more they want to get out of the market, uh, as opposed to the reverse, which is the more stocks rise, the more they want to get out of the market. It's completely backwards from the way you should think about it, but it is the way people think about it. And so this is another example of their gut going against them, their instincts going against them. And one of the points that I make in the book is that our instincts are not only often, but much more often than not, our own worst enemies. We need to train ourselves to be more disciplined. We don't like doing that. Uh, and we kind of do like going with the crowd. So when you're dealing with clients, and let's just talk about the last two years as an example, and the market's plunging in early 2009, and then it's it bombs in March of 2009, it's going up. Can you convince clients to go back in, or are they just too scared to uh, go in at that point, even though you know it goes against everything they're feeling? Uh, you're, you're saying this is a great opportunity. Well, the question of can you convince them, I, I think intuitively you know the answer is that there's people you can convince and people you can't convince. Uh, the best convincing is done through showing them facts, showing them history, showing them that things that they believe and read about uh, around them are actually false. Uh, people have a hard time with that. This concept of debunkery from uh, my book is particularly valuable as a tool because you can learn to do things like um, somebody says X causes Y, and then you just go and run a correlation coefficient and see how often X happens and then Y happens. And if it doesn't happen very often, you know, X doesn't cause Y. You don't know what does cause Y, but you know not to bet on X. And those kinds of things or, or you know, notions that people say like um, selling may go away. Well, if selling may go away works, uh, you're going to be able to take all the times you do that and see a really below average return from that. Uh, and if you threw out a couple of outliers, it wouldn't make any difference. Uh, these kinds of things are easy to prove, and it's easy to learn that if it shows up positive after that about the same amount of times as normal, it's, it is normal. Right. Don't bet that way. <laughs> Very good. All right, we're going to take a break. 
this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Ken Fisher, whose new book is called Debunkery, Learn It, Do It, and Profit From It, Seeing Through Wall Street's Money-Killing Myths. We'll be back after this. markets up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network Patricia Raskin, the host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday at 11 Pacific. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call to Positive Living, Mondays at 11 Pacific Time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Hi, this is Jordan Goodman, host of The Money Answer Show. I cordially invite you to join me and some of my favorite investing experts for the Money Answers Investing Cruise from February 12th through February 19th, 2011, on board Holland America's luxurious MS Eurodam. In this volatile investing environment, good advice is more important than ever, and this exclusive Caribbean cruise offers not only fun, but also a full week of highly informative events with me and other top investing experts like Ray Lucia and Charles Payne from Fox News Network. During seminars, panel discussions, and Q&As, at cocktail parties and at dinners, we will discuss current market conditions and the best places for your investment dollars. Meanwhile, luxuriate in the amenities of Holland America's newest ship and visit some of the best ports for shopping, sightseeing, and sunning. For more information, go to www.moneyanswerscruise.com or call 800 707 1634. That's 800-707-1634. And don't delay because spaces are limited. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Ken Fisher, uh, whose book is called Debunkery, Learn It, Do It, and Profit From It, Seeing Through Wall Street's Money-Killing Myths. Welcome back to the show, Ken. Again, thanks for having me back. You talk about growth is best for all time, that you should never do value and never do small caps. That's what the myth is. Why is that not true? Uh, I'm going to answer that two ways. One way, and people don't think this through, is that the person who fundamentally believes that growth is better than value or value is better than growth, big cap is better than small cap, or small cap is better than big cap, of which there's a lot of people that believe things like that, like small cap value is best, or big cap growth is best, or technology is best. I'm not talking about this week or this month. I'm talking about for all time. Uh, That's really missing the fundamental part of the capital markets pricing mechanism and capitalism itself. Effectively, it's a statement that you don't believe in capitalism and that you don't believe that capital works and capital markets work. The history of true liquidity-adjusted returns in the long term, that is the very long term, like 
30-year periods, is that they're almost identical if you analyze them correctly. And while you get periods of five, six, seven, eight years where one thing does better than another and everybody jumps on the bandwagon, and we've seen lots of those cycles in the past, in the very long term, and it is very hard for people to believe, the process of adjusting supply and demand, that is, in some areas that are too hot, we create supply of securities to dilute the return. In other areas that are too cold, uh, companies end up buying back all their own shares, uh, killing the supply of securities. But whether it's tech, pharmaceutical, utilities, uh, consumer staples, whether it's developed markets versus emerging markets, whether it's a U.S. versus Britain, very long time periods have almost identical returns, and they become particularly identical if you throw out a couple of extreme years. The feature that people have a hard time with is that capitalism actually works. Capital markets actually work pretty efficiently, and therefore, while there are these trends in the short term that one might take advantage of or suffer from, in the long term, all these categories are almost identical. So you're saying instead of putting all your money in growth stocks or mutual funds, you should have some in growth, some in value, some in small caps, really diversify amongst all the different assets. Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm not making a prescription for all your listeners because, first, Jordan, you've got a lot of different listeners, some of whom are a little like this and some of whom are a little like that. If you really think you know enough about how to do this stuff so that you can overweight heavily and time this type over here right now here, my view is great, do it, but don't believe that that category is going to be best for all time. It's going to be maybe best for a while if you're right, and if you're wrong, it's going to not be best. And the, the, there's people who, just because they believe, hold on to things for uh, ever, and then usually get out of them after they've been disappointed for 8 to 15 years just before they do well. Yeah. You also say that stop losses... Stop losses. A stop loss order is where you put in an order in advance to sell at a particular price when it goes down. Uh, you're saying that's not a good strategy. Why is that? Well, let me come back to that as a subset of a bigger question first. If you take uh, whatever list you want, not of people who write about investing, but people who've actually been big-name, legendary investors for a long time, uh, could be alive now, could be dead, doesn't matter to me, and say, what are all the kinds of things that those people do and don't do? If you can find something that none of them do, I'm going to tell you it doesn't work. Because somebody's tried everything, and the people that become legendary in actually managing money, some of them do it this way, some of them do it that way, not everybody's the same, but if you can't find anybody that's done it and it's been known about for a long time, that tells you the people that are doing it they're not having the success that gets them to that point. And stop losses is one of them. And the reason why that's the case is stocks are what in statistical jargon is known as non-serially autocorrelated, which in simple English means that prior price action alone tells you nothing about future price action. And the fact that a stock went from zero, uh, from 100 to 85, and you decided you're going to have a 15% stop loss, it doesn't tell you anything about where the thing's going next. So if that's 50-50, uh, and you get out, um, you just create a transaction cost with no apparent benefit. Half the time you're right, half the time you're wrong, but you create a transaction cost. That's a money-losing strategy. Stocks tend to rise more than they tend to fall, although not perfectly and not consistently. So <clears throat> you're actually incurring a transaction cost for something that is slightly more likely to rise than more likely to fall. The 
um, feature is that a stop loss will stop you from having a loss in that particular security, but then what do you do next? Uh, then you buy another security, it drops by 15%. Then you buy another security, it drops by 15%. You could take that all the way down to zero. Mm-hmm. The uh, feature that I would rather see as a broader lesson is that when you say anything, I don't care exactly what the strategy is, what the tactic is, if you can't find somebody, John Templeton deceased, Ben Graham deceased, Warren Buffett, I don't care who it is, but somebody that's kind of seen as legendary out of a long laundry list of legendary investors that did this thing, whatever it is, George Soros, they, they never use stop about. losses, you're saying? Pardon me? None of those ever use stop losses. I don't want to say that they never use stop losses. They didn't use stop losses much ever because they came to learn they don't work. Yeah. The next uh, uh, myth you have is that covered calls uh, do not work. Covered calls is where you own an existing stock and you're writing call options to receive income on it. Why does that strategy not work? No, no, covered calls work. What happens is that covered calls aren't what people think they are. Uh, I've had this argument with so many people, but the fact of the matter is that the math, and I take you through this in this chapter in the book, uh, doing covered calls is exactly the same risk-reward trade-off as selling a naked put. It is exactly the same math, and I take you through that math in in the chapter. When somebody does the covered call, they feel comfortable. They feel secure. They feel like they're not taking a lot of risk. If you ask them, uh, would you go out and sell a naked put? They say, oh, well, no, I'd never do that. That's way too much risk. This is like you know, two people that are standing on opposite corners of the street watching the same thing go by, but they're seeing the opposite sides of the truck. Um, the, the, the fact is, if you wouldn't do the risk of a naked put, you shouldn't do the risk of a covered call. Both of them are just instruments. So they actually do work as instruments, but the one is thought of by most people that do it as safe. The other is thought of by those same people as risky. The risk is exactly the same for both. This is the part about people are biased to see things one way, and they have an impossible time seeing them the other. And one of the advantages in finance, and one of the lessons that I try to teach, is try to get on the other side of the street and look at it from the other perspective and see if it still looks the same, because if it doesn't, it's not. Indeed. Okay, you, you, one of the biggest sacred cows in investing is you should do dollar cost averaging, where you're putting the same dollar amount in on a regular basis. When prices go down, you buy more. When prices go up, you're buying less. So overall, you get a higher return with lower risk. What's wrong with that? Uh, let me say that that would work really well if in the long term, stocks end up either being flat or going down. If in the long term stocks go up, it obviously doesn't do as well as if you just put the money in the beginning. It's really simple. So again, this goes back to our discussion earlier in a prior segment uh, where you say, what's your time horizon? If your time horizon is one that's short enough where you're concerned about volatility on an overriding basis and you're really thinking about the next year and only the next year, well, then you probably shouldn't be buying stocks at all. And in that environment, yeah, doing that works perfectly. If your time horizon is 20, 30 years, uh, you're better off to just put the money in right away. Unless, of course, you can predict the market. If you can predict the market, why would you do that? If you could predict the market and you knew the market was going down, you wouldn't put anything in. <laughs> yes, well, that, that's a really big sacred cow because a lot of people say that's, that's the, the, the... These are more examples of ones that people use to try to create comfort for themselves. 
And comfort, again, is a very expensive thing to get in markets. Let me, uh, let me give an example of, of uh, one that, and comfort comes in many different ways. Let me give an example of one that I wrote about uh, that I've never seen anybody write about in the way I write about it that I like a lot, which is people inherently, and for good reason, don't like paying fees. So there's this long history that we all know, which is that no-load funds do better than comparable load funds because of the differential in the loads. But one of the things that's easy to prove and easy to document is that despite that, people who invest in load funds end up doing better than people that invest in no-load funds. And people say, how can that be? That couldn't possibly be true because the no-load funds do better than the load funds. But the answer is when people buy the no-load funds, and this includes uh, things like ETFs, they feel like they can trade them whenever they get the whim or the urgency or the need in their heart. And so they hold them for very much shorter uh, holding periods, inning and outing at the wrong times, and they do very much worse compared to the no-load funds than load fund investors do compared to the no-load funds that they buy because the load fund investor holds them for seven years at a crack. So my prescriptive advice, which you're not going to have heard from anybody, is if you're going to buy funds, if you're going to buy mutual funds, buy no-load funds, but every time you want to trade them, pay your spouse the equivalent of a load fee. <laughs> that will make your spouse love you, and at the same time, it will create this kind of penalty that the load fund investor has that makes them not want to sell out because they want to amortize that load. And if you've got to pay your spouse that money and give it to him and let him do whatever he or she wants to do with it, A, the spouse will love you for it, but B, you'll think like a load fund investor while getting the returns of no-load funds. Very good indeed. You have a section on annuities uh, where you say uh, variable annuities, the, in, uh, the uh, kind of view of them is they have all upside and no downside, and then uh, particularly equity indexed annuities uh, where you're saying they're offering these guarantees, nothing could go wrong. Uh, these are both myths. What is wrong about these annuities? Well, there's uh, s- several things. One, and you know, there's nothing that I'm going to say here that is as uh, kind of... Uh, unique is what I just said about the mutual funds. But first, the fees are sky high. If you like the annuity salesperson so much on a variable annuity or uh, equity indexed uh, annuity that you feel like you want to put their kid through college, just give them the money to put their kid through college as a gift and then go out and buy index funds and hold on to them and you'll do better. Second, because the fees just eat you alive in these things. I mean, literally, when you're buying a million dollars worth of this stuff, you're putting the guy's kid through college. Uh, secondarily, and, and the fees are often very hard to find. The, the, the instruments that you're uh, buying these through are complex for the average person to read. But then additionally, and as a risk that people don't think through, they're only as good as the insurance company that wrote them. So, yes, people are looking for security, and they're willing to pay an awful lot in safety and comfort. They're paying a lot. For and, then, and then the insurance company goes broke in 10 years, and you're, you're out of luck. <laughs> Indeed. Very good. All right. I'm speaking with uh, Ken Fisher, whose new book is called Debunkery, Learn It, Do It, and Profit From It, Seeing Through Wall Street's Money-Killing Myths. We'll be back after this. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. 
Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Hi, this is Jordan Goodman, host of The Money Answer Show. I cordially invite you to join me and some of my favorite investing experts for the Money Answers Investing Cruise from February 12th through February 19th, 2011, on board Holland America's luxurious MS Eurodam. In this volatile investing environment, good advice is more important than ever, and this exclusive Caribbean cruise offers not only fun, but also a full week of highly informative events with me and other top investing experts like Ray Lucia and Charles Payne from Fox News Network. During seminars, panel discussions, and Q&As, at cocktail parties and at dinners, we will discuss current market conditions and the best places for your investment dollars. Meanwhile, luxuriate in the amenities of Holland America's newest ship and visit some of the best ports for shopping, sightseeing, and sunning. For more information, go to www.moneyanswerscruise.com or call 800-707-1634. That's 800-707-1634. And don't delay because spaces are limited. It's all Arizona, all over the world. If you're a local Arizona high school sports fan or if you're a transplanted fan somewhere else in the world, have we got a show for you. The first Internet sports radio talk show focusing solely on high school sports is The Coach's Corner with Scott Lovely. Tune in to talk about your favorite teams, players, or coaches. It's 100% Arizona high school sports coverage and a little bit more. Tune in Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern to the Voice America Sports Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Ken Fisher, whose new book is called Debunkery, Learn It, Do It, and Profit From It, Seeing Through Wall Street's Money-Killing Myths. Welcome back to the show, Ken. Again, thanks for having me. It's an honor. You talk about equity risk, risk premiums, uh, forecasting future returns with ease. People kind of feel comfortable that way. What is what's wrong with equity risk premiums? Well, all this is is a way to make a forecast. And uh, the reality is uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an academic notion that's been around for a long time, but pretty much the history of these people making forecasts is uh, not only not any better than other people's forecasts, some of which come from the Ouija board, but actually end up uh, being worse. Uh, you try to name two forecasters ever who've had a great history of forecasting based on equity risk premiums, and you can't find them. And... Uh, w- one of the reasons is that, again, this is usually done based on using historical numbers, but uh, historical numbers don't necessarily tell you about the future. You're still having to put in assumptions, and then you've got whatever assumptions the assumer is assuming. So why don't you just go with those assumptions in the first place? Indeed. Uh, the next one you have is about the VIX, which is the, the uh, volatility index. Uh, when that's higher, it means things are more volatile. When things are lower means things are less volatile. Uh, the myth is that when the VIX is high, it's time to buy. Why is that a myth? Well, that is the saying. When, when the VIX is high, it's, uh, it's uh, 
time to buy. And the, the fact is that if that were the case, and this is a really simple concept that I teach a, a number of ways in, in debunkery tied to other features, you would be able to actually run correlation coefficients that say when it's at this level, the market at either this time period or that time period or that time period or that time period moving forward is consistently up this amount or between this amount and that amount, and you'd end up being able to demonstrate some form of a reasonable correlation coefficient between the VIX and the market as a predictive tool. The fact is, one of the things that's beautiful about uh, correlation coefficients is they're on something that prices regularly able to demonstrate, is there a connection between the two? And if there isn't a connection between the two, uh, you're going to have a low correlation coefficient. If there is a connection, you're going to have a high correlation coefficient. And correlation coefficients are an easy way to disprove that X causes Y. Here, the VIX is just a coincident indicator with the market. It's not a leading indicator. It's not a forecaster. It falls apart statistically. All kind of people, not all kind of people, but many kinds of people are just diehard believers in the VIX, but this is a simple one where uh, correlations show that it uh, it doesn't do anything. It's not useful. It's uh, if, if I show a chart that shows longer-term correlations between uh, the S&P and the VIX, and you, know, you can just see that simply there's no there there. Yeah. Uh, the next one is about the, the Dow Jones Industrial Average. You hear about every day the Dow is up, the Dow is down. Uh, but it's actually a price-weighted index, right? It's it's weighted more by the price of the stocks than it is the market value capitalization of the stocks. Yeah, and this is one where it. people have an impossible time with this, and this has been around for a really long time. And people that actually use the Dow are demonstrating that they never took a class in index construction, because truly, and I demonstrate this, and I take you through the model and show you exactly how a two-stock index works, if you had a two-stock index constructed just like the Dow, in the Dow, in huge amounts, the fact is what's really important is whether stocks that split did better or worse within the index than stocks that didn't split. People don't want to believe that because the Dow has this thing called the uh, divisor that's adjusted for splits, but that's adjusted for the total. It's not adjusted for how the stocks perform within it. So if these stocks split and do better than those stocks that don't split versus vice versa, you can have in a given year a 10% difference in how the total index returns that has nothing to do with any economics. And so while on a given day the Dow bounces around, uh, you can't really see this compound effect over time that separates the Dow from its underlying economics. So you take periods, and this is one of the most famous ones where people used to talk about this very long period from uh, 1965 or 1968 until 1982, where the Dow had no return. Actually, over that time period, the market had a 7% return. It was below average. It wasn't it was a long, below-average period of return, but it wasn't flat, and the difference is the way the Dow is constructed. So you're saying the S&P 500, which is a market capitalization-weighted index, is a better kind of indicator of what's going on in the market? Uh, any cap-weighted index is better than a price-weighted index. The other uh, price-weighted index that you hear cited a lot is the Nikkei, yes. and the fact of the matter is nobody will ever create another price-weighted index. <laughs> price-weighted indexes are a relic of the past and are not reflections of economic reality. And I learned when I was a kid, because I took, took, took a class
class in, in index construction, I learned to never pay attention to the Dow. And I've ignored the Dow all my life and to my benefit. And people that focus on and when I hear somebody say, oh, I know what I'm doing because I made an eight-year prediction uh, based on the Dow that was really accurate, I say, you don't get it. If you made an eight-year prediction based on the Dow, everything was luck because you had no way to predict which stocks would split and which stocks didn't and whether they would do better or worse than the reverse. And that's the only thing that really controls in the, the Dow in the long term. People do not get this. Uh, you also talk about the strong dollar being super, strong dollar being good for the economy and good for stocks. Why is that a myth? There's two ways to see this, but one is if you just actually, again, do correlation coefficients between uh, dollar movements and markets, uh, there's no there there. Uh, sometimes for a little while there is, and then for a little while it goes the exact reverse. Uh, and and people have a hard time that if this really matters, it's going to do it fairly consistently. When when the dollar's strong and the market does this, and another time the dollar's strong and the market does something else, it's those other it's something else that was moving the market, not the dollar. But an, another way to see this is, and I'm just going to say this because it's basic. More or less, when we look forward. If the U.S. stock market goes up, the non-U.S. stock market goes up. If the U.S. stock market goes down, the non-U.S. stock market goes down. One might go up or down more than the other, and pretty much always one of them is going up and down more than the other, but they're positively correlated. They're highly positively correlated, even in short-term time periods, and 100% in anything that's a couple days or longer. And if a strong dollar was good or bad, it would imply that the reverse, the total non-dollar, was the reverse. If that was actually the case, a priori, by definition, stocks would be negatively correlated, not positively correlated between U.S. and foreign. As soon as you stop and think about the fact that on a global basis, you don't have a traded currency, you have currencies that trade against each other, it's a zero-sum game. But the stock market's positively correlated. You know that whether the dollar's rising or falling, the non-dollar's doing the reverse. And if the one was causal, the other would be causal the other way around, and the stocks would be negatively correlated. Since they're not, you know the dollar isn't causal. Very good. We have about a minute to go. Uh, again, people can find out more about your book. There is a website, debunkery.com, I think. Yeah, no, you can do debunkery.com. You can look it up on a search engine. Uh, you can go to Amazon. Uh, it's uh, If you... Pull out uh, the weekend's Wall Street Journal. It's uh, number five under hardcover business, and it's uh, number seven uh, on the New York Times business bestseller list. And I'm very pleased and honored to be able to share so many detailings of myths with people because I think at a time like the last couple of years, we need to actually get more people who can think through where am I right and where am I wrong, and let me try to minimize my error rate. Very good. My guest this hour has been Ken Fisher, whose book is called Debunkery, Learn It, Do It, and Profit From It, Seeing Through Wall Street's Money-Killing Myths. Hopefully you've enjoyed the show. Thanks so much for being with us, Ken Fisher. for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week. Do you feel like your life is stuck in mud? Do you feel like you're working really hard but getting nowhere? Hi, my name is Courtney Smith, and I want to introduce you to the laws of money. 
The reason why you are not getting the success in your life is because nobody taught you the laws of money. When you